If you've been told to pull up your socks, then make sure it's a pair of TNT socks. The TNT shop is now open at TNTradio.live. The Edit. The Edit with Trish Wood on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Hi, everybody. This is Trish Wood, and this is The Edit. And there's a lot going on this morning, some of it in Barcelona, where there are talks going on uh, from delegations of the European Union trying to figure out if this it's possible to extend the ceasefire, which a lot of people in the world are feeling is mandatory, but don't don't suspect necessarily that they're going to be successful. There's still a big push, it would seem, in some Western governments to keep this this thing going. Um, although there are some rumblings that maybe some delegations are starting to peel off as they are losing at least my analysis is, and we'll hear this from, from our guest today, there's, they're losing public support. I, I don't think it's sustainable. As long as these images are coming out of Gaza, it, uh, you can spin it, you can use whatever talking points you want to use. The bottom line is people are uncomfortable, if not horrified, by what we're seeing. So we're going to talk about that today. We've got two absolutely wonderful guests. I'm so thrilled to have them both. We've got Mats Nielsen, who's a geopolitical analyst. He's going to be joining us in a few minutes. And uh, Richard Hardigan, who uh, knows a lot about what it's like in, in Gaza and has written a terrific book about it. And he's going to be in later to speak um, really granularly about what might be going on on the ground there now after all of these um, absolutely, uh, incredibly deep bombardments. It, it, it was like, it was almost like Dresden and looking at the results, maybe worse in some ways. And, uh, it's hard to look at those pictures and, and understand that this is happening in modern times with modern armies using modern weapons in such an asymmetrical way. And I think that's very much what's probably underscoring these talks that are going on right now in Barcelona. And, uh, Matt's is going to join us in a minute to talk about that. Uh, I want to just emphasize one thing that we saw over the weekend with the release exchange of hostages, prisoners, is the importance of language in this conflict. Who is called what by whom? You know, Israel is releasing prisoners, um, and the the language is designed to suggest that they've all done something illegal, which is, as I understand it, not true. There are people held in administrative detention in Israel without ever really facing any charges. So who knows who these people are? We want to get more to the bottom of, of who was released. And then on the other side, you've got the hostages coming out, which is also an inflammatory word. And frankly, they were hostages, no question about that. But but you see, again, there's sort of asymmetry in the way that we talk about it. And I think that's very, very deliberate when we're looking at propaganda in, in, in wartime. One of the things that happened on the weekend that caught my eye, as Mrs. Lifshitz did when she was released a few weeks ago, was that some of the hostages, as they were being handed over by Hamas fighters and uh, Red Crescent people, waved and smiled at them as they were being driven away. And it was genuine. It wasn't some weird um, stress reaction. It didn't appear to be anyway. It se- there seemed to be some sort of genuine uh, well-wishing, if I can use such a strange word, uh, about this event. And um, so the, the phrase Stockholm Syndrome has been lighting up the internet for a couple of days because it's like a Rorschach test. You look at the picture and if you're sympathetic to the Palestinians, you say, see, the Hamas guys were, they were nice to them. But if you're pro-Israeli or anti-Hamas, whatever language we're using, uh, then these people weren't really happy. They were either pretending to be to protect the people left behind, or they have some kind of trauma that is causing them to behave in an irrational way. So, you know, it's that's going to be a very, very interesting debate. And I'm keen to see what the stories are from the hostages when we're finally permitted to hear from from them sometime way in the future, I suspect. Um, I wouldn't be surprised to learn that there was some, affection is the wrong word, but something softer. And the reason I say that is because if you put your headspace into where the hostages have been for the last several weeks, likely in these tunnels, likely under Gaza, 
which was being bombarded and people, many, many people were killed and everybody was terrified and there were very limited supplies. Any amount of kindness and protection offered you by your captors would feel large, right? You would respond to that. And actually, I did some research on the phrase um, Stockholm Syndrome this morning. And in fact, that is exactly what precipitated the, those feelings in the people who'd been held hostage in a bank. They were angry that the police who were trying to rescue them were being not careful enough with their firing. And they were afraid they were going to be killed by their own people coming to rescue them. And wow, isn't that a paradigm you could lay over for the Israeli hostages underneath Gaza, which was being, I would use the word, almost indiscriminately bombed, and they must have been terrified. So any ounce of protection um, afforded them by the captors may have precipitated some of these feelings that we're seeing. And you know what? It, it means probably nothing. It's just human nature. But, but human nature is interesting, isn't it? You know, people can bond over, over strange, strange things. And, and probably the hostages were upset that a deal was not struck sooner, uh, that Israel was not perhaps more careful and more strategic in its bombing missions that may have bubbled up there. So we will, I think, hear some very, very interesting uh, stories from these people when they're finally allowed to to speak. Uh, some other stuff going on. Um, there was over the weekend a, a stabbing, and this goes to language too, which I've been really talking a lot about on the show, but a stabbing of three, I believe there were Palestinian young men um, in uh, Maine, I believe it was, not Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, sorry. And uh, it looks like it was or could have been easily a response to some of this over overheated rhetoric that's coalesced on both sides now where people who are maybe a little bit unhinged and are you know harboring some islamophobic feelings or are harboring anti-semitic feelings are triggered by the the super duper tribalistic language that's being used right now on both sides so um they arrested a guy named jason j eaton on Sunday afternoon near where the men, all 20 years old, were shot at the Burlington, Vermont Police Department. They said he lives in an apartment close to the scene, a search of which revealed evidence that gave investigators probable cause to believe Mr. Eaton perpetuated the shooting. They're not saying anything else except it was probably a hate crime. But I will say this, uh, that the rhetoric is more heated now even than it was around 9-11. And that is saying something. And it's overheated on both sides. And I think the reason that it's more dangerous now is because uh, social media means everybody can be overheated and everybody all the time, and it's accessible. So that's a really dangerous thing. And then the last thing I wanna say just before we go to break and then we come back with, with Matt Nielsen is a super interesting uh, article that was in The Spectator over the weekend on this very subject. It was written by a young, a British schoolgirl, not super young, but young. Um, why so many teenagers support Palestine? And what the piece says is that teenagers are getting virtually all of their information on this conflict, all of it, all of it from TikTok. And so TikTok tends to breed pro-Palestinian sentiment. And what she said that was interesting is that if you're not pro-Palestinian socially, you are rejected by your peers on TikTok. She said, if you're not pro-Palestine, declares a girl on TikTok who is my age, we're not friends. If you're neutral right now, we're not friends. If you're too uneducated to have an opinion, we're not friends. Your neutrality is complacency. To be socially acceptable to her, then you need to support Palestine against Israel. To venture that the conflict is complicated is to be uneducated. She says they don't read newspapers, they don't read long articles and magazines, and they don't watch TV news. So this is really, really dangerous. Regardless of what side of the issue you are on, this is nuts. It's almost like it's breeding mass hysteria. Because even people who uh, are pro Palestinian or pro-Palestine because for, for good and thoughtful and academic and scholarly reasons, uh, 
can see the complexity of the situation. When you have young people who are so brainwashed by the algorithms of this thing, which is like if you click on uh, a pro-Palestine TikTok, then you get fed all the other ones. You don't get fed the other side. You get fed all the other ones that are saying the same thing. And then that becomes your reality. So this is not good, people, is it? Um, we got to figure out how to get our kids back using their whole brain and reading books and getting off their phones and not determining their friendships and the way they think over, over this kind of tribalism. So we're going to go to a break now, and then we're going to be back for a great discussion with Matt Nielsen on the meetings in Barcelona on the future of a ceasefire and maybe ending this thing, if that's even possible at this point. Back in a minute. I'm Trish Wood. TNT Radio's Patrick Henningsen. There's a dark cloud which is gathering over Ukraine. This has been an absolute disaster. In the last month alone, as I reported previously, Ukraine's lost 13,000 troops in October. So what does that mean? Well, you can guess that recruitment is probably down. So right now, the government in Kiev, the Zelensky government's doing forced conscription. Morale is at an all-time low. Uh, we've also seen conscientious objectors uh, who are taking to social media media like Telegram who reported uh, that they were just finished a six-month prison sentence uh, after refusing to go to the front line. Some of the forced conscripts rebelled, were imprisoned for six months, did a six-month sentence, and then the day before their release, they were put into a van and then sent to the front line. I kid you not. Patrick Henningsen on today's News Talk TNT Radio. Military families often sacrifice precious time away from loved ones while serving our country. And for those with children, the separation can be especially difficult. We were worried that with him leaving, that she would lose those connections with her dad. Some of life's best moments happen between parents, children, and the pages of a good book. United Through Reading provides that connection. You can watch your mom or dad read a book to you, and it almost feels like they're really there. We ensure they remain a consistent, meaningful part of their children's lives, no matter the distance. Just seeing Jacob recognize Daddy again after a long time just melted my heart. And now, as we're facing greater isolation from our loved ones, United Through Reading is also available to veterans. Learn more about United Through Reading and download our free secure app at unitedthroughreading.org. A hoax about carbon dioxide in the climate has caused a global energy and economic disaster. Today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Trish Wood, this is The Edit, and we're back with Matt Nielsen, and we're going to talk about some talks that are underway in Barcelona right now aimed at ending or actually ex ending the conflict but ex by extending the ceasefire hi Matt. how are you oh fine thank you i'm uh, actually in stockholm about uh, perhaps uh, 800 meters from the uh, norman story where the bank robbery that coined the stockholm syndrome once took place in the 1970s so uh, yeah it's fascinating I'm, I'm, I'm that's close. being yeah, it's fascinating that's being batted around right now. I, I, this caused me to do yeah. some research on it this morning to see how they, they, and they're actually a closer fit than I suspected and not in the way people are using it, right? No, that's true. That's true. It was yeah. coined with a different meaning, but uh, that's, uh, that's another story. Yeah. So what, how are we to per perceive what's going on in, in Barcelona? There is there kind of rumblings that maybe they're moving toward toward an extension what what do you think oh i think sadly this is just going to be another one of those uh, theater shows uh, where everyone will proclaim that they want peace uh, that they're looking for a two-state the elusive uh, schrodinger's two states uh, solution that will never appear uh, as it is right now uh, the meeting is chaired by the eu uh, foreign Minister Policy Chief Joseph Borrell uh, and the Jordanian Foreign Minister uh, uh, Ayman uh, Safadi. And this is, this is the catch. Israel is not attending the meeting uh, because in the past years this has made basically been a forum for cooperation between the European U Union and the Arab world. And yeah. uh, so it, it was supposed to focus on, on something different uh, reminiscing about the years gone by. But now, of course, it's, it was a possibility 
to uh, include everyone to try and stop the ensuing war uh, or, or um, the uh, attacks uh, that Israel are going on about in Gaza. And uh, of course, Burrell has used the diplomatic term that he regretted Israel not being there. And uh, uh, But without Israel, I think the only thing that will come out of this meeting is that the EU might gather a further understanding about uh, the Arab state's position on uh, the Gaza war. But it's not in any way going to lead to peace per se. Uh, and that's mainly mainly due to the fact that no one within Europe or America is willing to do what it takes to force Israel to start discussing the two-state solution. You, you can scream all you want about the two-state solution, but yeah. until the day comes when the European Union and the United States and the other nations that partake in the Western world, uh, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, and, um, and so on, start treating Israel like South Africa, the South African apartheid regime was once treated, nothing is going to happen. And that's basically because the current uh, government in Israel is quite far right, and they have gained a momentum right now. So the reins of power in Israel belongs to Netanyahu, Netanyahu and his right-wing parties. So right now they have a momentum and they're going to keep grabbing more land. I think they just announced yesterday that they were building new settlements on the West Bank. And it's obvious that they're probably not going to let the people of Gaza return to the northern part of Gaza. If they get to keep the southern part of Gaza, that's still an open question. But unless the European Union and the Western world says enough is enough, if you don't start negotiating, we're going to have to apply sanction, sanctions. I, I'm sorry. Uh, I, uh, it, it pains me to say I don't see uh, any way this is going to end but Israel annexing the West Bank and... Uh, forcing all the Gazan citizens to leave Gaza, ethnically cleansing Gaza. And they will probably get away with it uh, as well. Do you think so? You think they'll get away uh, with it? Beyond sad. Do Do you think they'll get away with it? Because it's a really interesting question because all the signs kind of diplomatically are, are suggesting that they've been given a very, very long rope. But at the same time, what you know, the, the, the West's kind of wink and nod that Israel can go as far as it wants to is also kind of operating on the same playing field as these mass de- demonstrations and polls that are saying, no, 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 this isn't fair. So how can that, how can that even happen? Is it just another expression of how leaders govern not for the people, but for their own geopolitical ends? Exactly. It's all about geopolitical ends. We're, we're back in, uh, we're back to, 1890 again. It's all about your political positionings. Uh, Israel has turned into, sadly, turned into a quite a, a tribal nation that's adamant on on destruction and expansion in total disregard for the Palestinian people and international law. But yeah. they are financed and armed and protected by the United United States and other Western lackeys, uh, which kind of allowed them to do this. And right now, I'm not seeing enough pressure in the Western world to force the governments to uh, start putting pressure on Israel. And I think this is also a tribal issue, because uh, I, I, I myself worked in, worked in Israel and the West Bank. I, I, I was stationed in, in Hebron or Al-Khalil for almost a year. Yeah, uh, maybe a decade ago, and of course it's easier for me. I mean, I worked in in uh, Al Khalil. I, I saw how the the Israeli government oppressed the people of Al Khalil. But me as a European, when I went back to to Tel Aviv, and you know, I I sat down on the beach with a beer. I got my bacon sandwich. That that was that was my home. Uh, it, it, I I felt more comfortable. 
being uh, in Tel Aviv than I did in Al Khalil. But of course, my heart was in Al Khalil. But it just this, it's so easy to uh, for Israel to drive a propaganda that we are standing up against the barbarous Islamist hordes uh, that are coming to get us. And if you are European, you kind of instinctive, instinctively feel, oh, yes, but those Muslims, they're, they're kind of funny people. Oh, well, it's I'm the class of, of civilizations, isn't it? That's, and that's the trope. Of, and, and, yeah. and, and that's a driven narrative. It's a very yeah. dangerous narrative, but it's used by the powers that be in the Western world. They want to drive it home. It's us and it's them. It's, it's the oldest trick in the book. And once again, it's working. And right now it's working because it's protecting Israel. It's allowing Israel and its cynical leaders to continue uh, to move towards a total annexation of uh, Palestine. Yeah, let, let, I want to talk a little bit more about this meeting in Barcelona, though. And, and that is, okay, the, are yes. they just? Are w- would you say that they are just kind of blowing smoke then? Without Israel there, what is the point? I mean, maybe the point is just to make a point and put out a statement and show that there's some collective condemnation of what's going on. But without Israel there, what can they do? I mean, what is Borrell well, saying about that? Well, there will be some things coming out of the meeting in Barcelona. Uh, they, they will have thorough discussions on how to manage the humanitarian crisis in Gaza. Mm. I, I'm certain about this, and that's what I've seen come out from, from the official pro- uh, declarations so far. Also, uh, what I've read uh, this morning is that the EU really wants to make sure that the United Nations will be taking a stronger leading role in establishing how, how they can how they can fill any vacuum if if, if Israel declares victory and, and defeats Hamas. What's going to happen then? And I think the EU is very afraid of sitting there with, with all the responsibilities. So the EU would try and move the responsibility towards uh, the United Nations in, in Barcelona yeah. as well. And um, but, but can I just say, what, what can they... Sorry, let, I just want to ask you this, because as you were speaking, I, this thought came to mind. Israel is almost, in a sense, acting as a rogue nation, right? When there's a, a vote at the UN, it's 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 Israel and the United States, and I think France was in there. Maybe they've stopped now voting with them. But, 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 what difference does it make, in a sense, what the UN says if Israel is just going to keep doing what it wants with the de facto end game approval of the United States? I mean, does it matter what anybody else does at this point? No, no, no. The the, the the current situation gives us that uh, it's what happens in, in Washington and, and London and uh, Jerusalem that matters for the Palestinian people. Because the international community, uh, and I, th- I think one of the problems for the Palestinian people is that the Arab nations and the Arab communities are also not unified. As you, as you I think you have read, for example, Turkey is still facilitating... Uh, Israel with with huge amounts of, of uh, gas and oil and and it's it's basically like I said it's many interests geopolitical interests trying to uh, maneuver so they can come out of t- on top of someone else but unfortunately yeah. the people who are always always at the bottom of this are the Palestinian people and especially the Palestinian citizens of Gaza. Yeah, it it seems um, like they've been abandoned by a a lot of people. I mean, it it actually sort of feels like they're the only people who haven't abandoned them are students (laughs) and enlightened, uh, you know, sort of left leaning uh, Jewish people. Right. But 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 the 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 kind of handmaidens of power have a, have abandoned them, which is it's it's a really unsettling moment in in history. I'm I'm having a lot of trouble uh, trying to figure out exactly what's happened here. Give me just in in a few seconds what you think the actual outcome is going to be from this meeting, please. Uh, the actual outcome, it's the yeah. tangible outcome that that we can will be able to see is that the EU will probably solve 
how to facilitate humanitarian aid to Gaza. Basically, it's they will be solving the problem of how to put a Band-Aid on a wound that needs a tourniquet. The Palestinian mm-hmm. patient is bleeding to death. The EU will decide in Barcelona, together with other Arab states, that they will give a Band-Aid. But that's about it, uh, unless uh, a miracle happens, which I doubt. It's Nothing is going to come out of this uh, meeting in Barcelona, uh, the way I see it, and it's my assessment, based on Ma- what information I have right now. Yes, thanks so much, Matt Nielsen, for doing this. Very grateful to you. Uh, this is Trish Wood. And uh, we'll be back in a few moments with our next guest, Richard Hardigan, to talk more about Gaza. Back in a moment. De-weaponizing weather with reality and perspective. The biggest weather news is what is about to happen in Europe. I saw another one of those pictures of Greta Thunberg protesting today. I guess today is like week 300 or something of the climate strike where kids are allowed to be truant and, uh, you know, to protest climate. But she was all bundled up and I was like, well, wait a minute. Looks awfully cold over there. And uh, were there fossil fuels used in the making of those clothes that you have on? But I want to get serious about this. The fact that we are getting such a cold blast that is coming in and this was telegraphed with those big storms and the reason you see what's going on in the weather today is because all the weathermen start screaming and yelling about climate change instead of understanding the same thing happened in 2009 and they went into the deep freeze over there. But it's a serious situation. You know why? Well, first of all, the implications of that is that the United States is going to get very cold. Now, it's cold right now, but I'm talking about what could be really cold weather, severe cold, in the month of January. Because there's probably going to be a lot of snow in the United States during the month of December, especially after the 20th. So what we saw in 2009, 2010 was Europe got it in 2009 in December, and then the U.S. had their famous snowmageddon, and that occurred later in January and February. It'd be a little bit earlier this year, probably, looking at the overall pattern. But think about this. You're going to get that grid in Europe tested now, and especially Germany. Germany looks like ground zero for the worst weather. The most snow, it's going to be a little bit colder relative to averages up where Greta lives. But Germany is going to be in bad shape here the next 10 to 20 days. But again, then you have to worry about the rest of the winter. You see what I'm saying? So we're going to have some things push come to shove, so to speak, coming up here over the next couple of weeks. And in fact, the next couple of months, because unlike last winter, I don't think this is backing off this year. This is TNT Climate and Weather Watchdog Meteorologist Joe Bastardi asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you've got. Anticipate potential delays for the morning commute. In other news, a recent government report on prescription drug pricing points to corporate mouth. Freedom of the press is about your right to know. What are you talking about, man? Look at this stats. It's about your right to be informed. Your right to access all types of information keeps us free as a nation. No, 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 no. Today, there are real threats to press freedom. residential areas by... And your right to know about the world around us. Look. Some threats are obvious, some are easy to miss, but they all put our way of life at risk. We must defend against all of these threats, no matter what kind of news is important to you. Justified putting American troops in harm's way. That's a great question. We must protect our right to know before it's too late. Understand the threats. ProtectPressFreedom.org. Trish Wood and the Edit on today's News Talk Radio and TNT. Hi, we're back again and talking more Gaza. Our next guest is uh, Richard Hadigan, Hardigan, um, forgive me, who uh, has written a book called The Other Side of the Wall. He spent some time in the region and he's knowledgeable enough i hope to sort out some things i'm still quite confused about regarding the uh, the prisoner swaps and and what they actually mean prisoner hostage what do we call these people um hi richard how are you hi i'm good thanks for uh, thanks for having me happy to have you um do you think generally speaking that public opinion will change will be affected in any way at all uh, by what happened over the weekend with these prisoner prisoner swaps, hostage swaps, whatever we're calling them? 
Well, I don't think so. I guess I assume you're talking about the fact that the the hostages um, that were returned by Hamas uh, looked to be in very good condition and obviously were treated very well. Um, yeah, I don't think that is going to change public opinion. Essentially, if you think about it, there are two kinds of uh, there are people that follow this conflict very closely and that know about the history. And there are other ones that, that don't. And my sense is that the people that don't know anything get most of the information from the media and the way the media frames all of this, uh, you know, they sort of frame things as they essentially assume that things started October 7th. So most people don't really know the history. And so they see what happens in the media and the way the media portrays this. They, um, they basically see Hamas, they see all Palestinians as terrorists and, and so on. So th this isn't going to change any. The pro-Zionists yeah. are going to say, well, this is just propaganda. Hamas is doing this for propaganda. And then, you know, the pro-Palestinians are going to say, well, they're obviously treating them well. They're going to compare them to the, uh, the treatment received by the prisoners in, by the hostages in Gaza that were returned a week ago. And and see the obvious difference there. So I don't think it's really. Yeah, I, I said at the top of the show that uh, social media is on fire today. And one of the hashtags is Stockholm syndrome. And depending on which side of the Gaza Israel argument you're on, if you see these reasonably happy looking uh, prisoners coming back from or sorry, hostages coming back from Hamas and waving and smiling. Um, some people are saying, well, that's proof they were treated well. And, you know, and, and the other side is saying, no, no, it's Stockholm syndrome. All hostages, all hostages do that when they're, you know, so it's quite an interesting thing, but I learned that, that, that the Stockholm syndrome is a, it's kind of an artifact of starting to be mad at the people who should be rescuing you. That's actually what happened in that bank in Stockholm. They got mad because the cops were recklessly shooting like mad. And so it does, if you, if you have any empathy at all or any imagination, it must have been terrifying to be under Gaza in those tunnels with constant bombardment. And probably if the, if the Hamas people showed any kindness or protection at all, that would be a very influential move and have a big effect on those people, wouldn't it? I think that's certainly certainly possible. I mean, it must have been terrifying that to hear all the bombardment and all of that. Um, yeah, it's, it's really hard to say. Again, it depends on the lens that you're looking through the whole conflict through how you interpret this. Yeah, and that's exactly why it is so very, very tribal right now. Um, how does the framing of the swap look in the U.S.? How is it playing out in, in media there? Well, in the U.S., I think things are as you would expect. So the, the Palestinians are not seen, seen really as, as humans, whereas the Israeli hostages are. Um, you know, in the news, you see the, the hostages, the Israeli hostages are treated as individuals. People talk about their, their names. They have images of them being returned to their families. Whereas in, mo in most cases, in the Palestinian case, they just, they're talked about, they're not even given names. They're just like 30 or 39 prisoners were returned. And so even the use, um, the use of the word prisoner versus hostage has some some connotations, right? And I think those are used on purpose by the, the media here. Yeah, no, I, I talked about that at the top of the show. I, I don't think I've ever seen a conflict in decades of, of working in journalism where the language is so manipulated as it is in the Middle East and specifically in this story. It's, it's really, it's quite remarkable. One of the things I did see, and I believe I was probably watching Al Jazeera or maybe Channel 4, um, is the, these people coming back from Israel who went in as children and then came out as grown men. I mean, I, I think most people understand why, why is Israel jailing children? Well, they have a, okay, so they actually have a different definition of child. 
their definition of child is has a different age, uh, a different age limit. Why are these yelling children? Um, I think everything about that is just intimidation. You know, most of the children are detained on charges of stone throwing, which carries a, a, um, a sentence of 10 years. And it's just about intimidation. They're just jailing children because they they can. You know, there's no, so they under are under a, a military occupation. So the, the, the system there is military. And so there are no trials. There are trials, but the conviction rate for Palestinians is something like 99.4%. Mm. They just jail, they jail whoever they, they can. It's just intimidation. Yeah. I, I was in uh, the West Bank in the early 90s during one of the intifadas. Anyway, kids were throwing rocks at us because we foolishly had Israeli plates on our cars, journalists. I don't know how that happened, but it was stupid. Um, and, and the people throwing the rocks were all kids. And and as I understand it, those kids can be arrested. And I get, I guess my question is, what is Israel's thinking behind jailing kids for throwing rocks? Why wouldn't it just be better for everybody if they dealt with it in a different way instead of sticking them in in prison the way they have been? Well, I think, I mean, I think this goes back to you have to look at kind of the way Israel was founded. Israel was founded sort of in this giant paroxysm of of violence. And so there's a saying that says that everything, you know, to a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Mm. And so every, if you look at all the ways they responded to every situation, even where a political one might be the right response, they respond with, with violence and with imprisonment. And I, don't, I, think it's, I think it's just part of their, um, kind of part of the DNA there, you know. Yeah. Let me ask you about what, what might be going on now behind closed doors, because we, we heard last week from various sources being reported in, in the media that uh, the cabinet of Netanyahu was pretty, was pretty divided over this ceasefire deal. They wanted to just keep on going. What is your assessment now of what's going on? It, it seemed at the beginning like there was some unity around taking this hard line based on the atrocity narrative that became the whole kind of causes belli really for the bombardment if you step back i think you can see that um but what about now do you do you think that people will be maybe peeling off in the cabinet and that he will be more isolated at some point or no i think it's hard to say i think I mean, there's a lot of right wingers, a lot of extreme right wingers in that in that cabinet, right? And so they are going to. I mean, they're even making noises now, like Ben Gavir and Smotrich both said, "We are completely against this." You know, this is giving uh, aid to the terrorists, etc. But uh, there's also a lot of pressure from the families. Yeah. There are a lot of protests and marches and things like that. There's a lot of pressure families to get these hostages home so and there's also i believe there's pressure from the u.s to to get this over with as soon as possible so they still have Are these there... forces Sorry, go ahead uh, no well, i was going to say yeah, yeah go ahead no i was just going to say is there talk amongst the people that you know that there was at any time during the the bombardments, a kind of the Hannibal direct, uh, directive was in play that they were prepared to sacrifice their own citizens in order to get the job done of leveling Gaza. I mean, that's an extreme way of thinking about it. But, but you know, one wonders, it seems so indiscriminate. They couldn't have known if they were bombing their people or not. So was there talk that they had taken a decision that if they lost their own people, it was fi not fine, but it was they were going to do that? Yeah, I have not. I mean, it certainly crossed my mind, and I think it crossed the minds of a lot of people, but I have not heard anything from official channels or anything like that about using the Hannibal Directive. So I Which would just say what that is, say what the Hannibal Directive is for people who don't know. Is it followed on the heels of the Gilad Shalit uh, situation when he was kidnapped in, and then returned in 2011 in exchange for a thousand prisoners. And so 
the, the Israeli government decided that having a um, an Israeli a hostage situation was much worse than having a dead Israeli. So they would do everything possible to prevent that from happening, even if there was a chance that the Israeli would would die. And so that's obviously a very controversial uh, controversial directive. But that's mm -hmm. that's where it came from. And people, so there are people that say this is what's happening now, but. I don't know. It's too hard. To, it's just speculation. It would just be speculation on my point. Well, I think there's a lot of speculation about it because there's so much of it that doesn't make any sense. You know, it, it's it's really hard to fathom that unless their goal is just obliterate Gaza so they can annex it, which it's looking more and more like that's what they're doing. Um, let me ask you this. Why do you feel, and, and this is, comes up in conversation a lot, why aren't the other Arab countries taking them in and saving them right now? So, so what, what has, and, and this feels different too than it would have maybe 10 years ago. What's, what's changed and why are they not more sympathetic in reality uh, toward the Palestinians that they, they seem to actually be? Yeah, I think it's, it's difficult to say. One thing is I'm sure they're getting a lot of pressure from the United States. Um, I think, you know, obviously the people in those countries are very much, uh, you know, they're very much supportive of the Palestinians. And so the governments of those countries, they have to take that into account. But I think the pressure from the United States is, is just so strong. They're essentially, you can think of these, you know, you're not talking about Saudi Arabia and, and Jordan and, and Egypt. They're essentially U.S. client states. And so I think the pressure from the United States is just is just too strong. Yeah. And also, Why? also there's the the whole issue with the, some of the Gulf states wanting normalization with with Egypt. And so maybe there's some there's some on about that. Yeah, it seems very strange that you know we're at a point now where where the Palestinians' usual allies are not great, or have not been great for them. But now there's this new cohort of uh, kind of, in a sense, radicalized university students and high school students, as I talked about at the beginning of the show. And even normal, I don't know if you, you know about this comment from normal, Norman Finkelstein the other day. I think he might have been on with maybe with Crystal Ball or someone like that on on her show, but but he said that he had given up on Gaza about four or five years ago. He said, I just, we, we weren't gonna, nothing was gonna change. It was always gonna be this way. The world doesn't care about them. The media doesn't care about them. And I, and he, he was saying it in a sorrowful way that he was mad at, like he was mad at himself. And it was the October 7th that reignited his commitment to, to speak for them. And on a human level, I really kind of understood what he was saying. It had been a hard slog so, uh, defending the Palestinians, right? It's like the least popular cause in the whole world. <laughs> and um, and this has reignited his his commitment. You can see it in his face. He's probably doing about ten interviews a day. He looks exhausted. So, right. So, do you do you understand where he's coming from on that issue? That he, I'm sure he just thought this will never succeed. I can't, you know, I can't win anybody over. Yeah, I think so. I, I kind of agree with that assessment. I think uh, that's also part of the possibly part of the thing for this attack by Hamas that they felt the world was was not it was not caring anymore about the conflict, and there was no the U.S. was not putting any pressure on Israel to get something done, and it was just sort of disappearing from the the world's consciousness. And mm -hmm. one reason for this attack was that Hamas wanted to get that back on the kind of on the, the front the front burner. I mean, there are other reasons as well. And, and they seem to have certainly succeeded in getting the world's attention. And, you know, one of the other reasons they, they actually did this was they were very, very unpopular at home in Gaza. And there's been some opinion polls, uh, one that was done just before the attack. And then one was that that was done a few weeks later. And the opinion of Hamas has changed completely in the Gaza Strip. It's much, much more positive right now. Wow. See, people would hate that because the West would say, oh, so now they're supporting people who do these terrible atrocities that they're accused of doing. 
Um, so that it's a very, that's a very, very interesting conundrum morally for people, I think. Right. How, how do you, maybe you can just have a, have a go at explaining why that might be. Well, I would think so in, in the West bank, the time I spent in the West bank, I was there when in the West bank during the, uh, uh, 2014 assault mm-hmm. and really really pulled for they really supported Hamas even though you know Hamas is a is a so I spent I spent years uh, working with Palestinian refugees in in Europe and the most the, the the biggest reason for Palestinians from Gaza leaving was Hamas not Israel so Hamas was super super unpopular but when when there's an external kind of factor when there's an external an invasion from outside the country sort of pulls together and you've seen that in other in other situations as well so i think that's that's kind of natural in the west bank you know the 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 view of the something like 90 percent of the population is a positive view of hamas right now of course they don't have to deal with the bombings i mean they're what they're going through is terrible as well but they don't have to deal with the bombings they don't have to deal with being ruled by this this very extreme Islamic group, um, but even in Gaza, even though they have to deal with that, they're they're kind of my sense is that they're just pulling together against a, a common enemy, which is probably what Hamas was counting on. Yeah, well, and I also suspect that they haven't been inundated with the atrocity propaganda the way that everybody else has since they're being bombarded. It's unlikely they're sitting watching CNN at night, right? So they. Right. Their Probably understanding true. of what happened on October 7th is probably somewhat different than people who are consuming legacy media news. Yes, yes. Many, many people, though, the poll, again, these polls, you have to take them with a grain of salt, especially since they were taken under these current conditions. They were very supportive of the attack. Yeah. My enemy's enemy is my friend or whatever, how, whatever that saying is, you know. Yeah. So, um do you think that since this really is a, very much about image and um, and popularity even and language, do you think that Israel's image can ever recover from this? There's so much negative one can say about what's happening right now. Um, it's It feels very dark to me and like it might be a stain on the country for a few years to come. What do you think? What do you think of that? Well, I think it's definitely a stain on the country, um, and it will be for years to come. I think, in general, the world is moving towards a much more pro-Palestinian point of view, and I think a, a big part of that is, is that people get their media from different sources now. Um, I can't really speak to how the media works in the global south. But I mean, this is the worst—the worst thing that Israel has done in in quite a while. And so, it'd be very interesting to see how the world. I mean, if you look at some of these United Nations resolutions, the one that called for a ceasefire—I think it was three weeks ago—almost the entire world voted in favor of it. Mm. You know, something. It was not the Security Council resolution, the the General Assembly resolution. And so, I think that shows that you know. I mean, definitely, the, the most of the world is against Israel on, on against what Israel is doing right now, for sure. I wonder what this is going to do for for kind of Israel domestically, because Israel has always, or I should say, always, but mostly been perceived by most people in the West as the good guy, as the they always say, "We're the democracy in a sea of savagery," you know, um, and that, and even. You know the American um, political people will will say that because of obviously the influence of APAC, but they but that's how it was perceived. And I, I feel like maybe because of the scenes coming out of Gaza, it's really seeded that that territory. And I wonder how people in Israel, in the cold light of day, are going to review what they might have supported. I mean what they might have supported in just in terms of this bombing campaign. Well, the violence of, of it, yes, and the civilian death count and the children and, and all of that. I'm just, 
you know, people wake up when they're not scared anymore and go, Ooh, that was, why do we do, you know? Right. That's a good question. I mean, I think there's so much, um, I don't know if you want to call it propaganda in Israel, but, but, you know, most, so men have to go into the army for three years and women for two years, every, every Jewish Israeli, except for a, a select few. And so the army is, is a place where there's a lot of indoctrination. And so they are basically, if you look at some of the opinion polls in Israel of the Jewish Israelis, what they think of, of Arabs, even the Arabs, uh, you know, citizens of, of Israel, it's, it's shocking. There's, you know, there was a poll a few years ago that said that that more than half of Jewish Israelis want all the Arabs, the citizens of Israel, to be transferred. So there is so much hatred, so much anti-Arab sentiment in there. I think that will override any sense of, of, you know, remorse. Yeah, I don't. I don't think so. Yeah, I can't, I can't really see that. And so in the short term, um, and we were speaking uh, to Matt Nielsen this morning about this, but do you think they'll be able to extend the ceasefire with, you know, little tranches of hostages being returned every day, a few here, a few there, in order to stop the bombs from falling, or, or what? What do you think will happen there? Well, my understanding is that Israel has made the offer uh, they have said, you know, for every 10 hostages that Hamas returns, we will extend the ceasefire by by one day. And so this is my understanding that it's up to Hamas right now. And I think I'm assuming Hamas will go for it right now. The pressure in Israel is, is too strong to to resume the bombing and to put the hostages at risk. Uh, so I think it will be probably will be extended. Um, but I don't know what happens, you know, I think what's going to happen is that Hamas is not going to return any of the Israeli soldiers under these ceasefire conditions. I don't know what happens when, when they get to that point where they have to talk about those hostages. Yeah. That's a different scenario. Because they'll be reluctant to, to hand them back again. Do you think they'll kill them? I, I don't know. I can't. I, I would have no idea. But I think they they definitely, I mean, they lose all their leverage once they start returning the, the Israeli soldiers. Yeah. And and how many, just quickly, because we're going to run out of time, but how many people are in Israel, uh, Pal Palestinian people, who could be returned? What's the? I've heard the numbers are quite huge. Like there's 7,000 people in administrative hold or something, and it's just... Well, yeah, there's 8,300 in currently Palestinians in Israeli prisons. Um, yeah. Actually, people don't really talk about this, but 3,000 of them were imprisoned since the attack of October 7th. Wow. So even so using the word in those cases, is those are essentially hostages. Yeah. So look, I'm so uh, very glad that you did this and uh, we'll have you back. This is obviously an ongoing situation and uh, we're monitoring it very closely and we're so glad you were here today to help us do that. Thank you very much, Richard Hardigan. Very grateful to you. Thank you. And I, I am Trish Wood and uh, this is The Edit on TNT and we'll be back soon.